worship team, you can open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 uh, is where we're going to be in our uh, series uh, called Kingdom Living, a kingdom living study of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. We are halfway through 12 chapters. We are on chapter 7. Today, kingdom living is living backward to the ways of the world. Uh, I've been telling you that every week since we started this series, I've been hearing from you that uh, so many of you are like, hey, this is my favorite book in the whole Bible, which has been a little, you know, not, I won't say strange or weird, it's just different. I just didn't, I just didn't know that from most people. And then I was going to get through the week, and then yesterday I'm at a wedding, uh, Pam and Alex in our community had an opportunity to officiate their wedding, and I'm sitting at the table, and Anna goes, hey, Swain, if you haven't heard this week, Ecclesiastes is my favorite book of the Bible. And I was like, well, of course it is. Of course it is. And then Jack and Natalie were sitting right there, and Jack was like, and it's mine as well. I'm like, well, of course it is. Of course it is. Uh, I want to take an opportunity to just kind of look back over the last six chapters very briefly, and then we'll get into chapter seven. Uh, life is short. Life is short. Life is hybel, Hebrew word hybel, translated meaningless, futility, um, really means breath, vapor. Life is short. It's a gift that God has given us. The life, the, the air that we're breathing is a gift from God in this moment. Amen? This is where we are. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And it is not gain. Life is not gain. Wisdom of Ecclesiastes says life is not gain. Life is gift. The world, the world would tell you that life is gain. Uh, but the preacher, the teacher in Ecclesiastes would say that glitter achieve, glittering achievements in life under the sun is like chasing the wind. Chasing the wind. Big message, I would say, for the first six chapters. Probably the whole book will continue to walk this out week after week. A chapter at a time. Big message. Life, this hybel, it eludes our control. You may think you're in control. We are not in control. God is in heaven. We are on earth. So let our words be few, right? That's, we've learned that in this journey. Life eludes our control. Because of that, we need God's wisdom in our lives. And if we don't have God at the center, we despair. We, emphasis on the word we, we despair. Ecclesiastes 4, two are better than one. For if one falls, the other is there to lift them up. Three are better than two. Four are better than three. Five is better than four. We, we, not me. We need God's wisdom. Amen? And so we get to seven today, and seven is a little bit of a kind of a new trailhead from where we've been over the last six weeks. Chapter 7, I think, with this big message of uh, life eludes our control, and if we don't have God, uh, we, we despair. It's like with that reality, how then shall we live? Gets real practical. Chapter 7 gets real practical. Uh, we're talking about grief. We're talking about receiving wise counsel. We're talking about anger. We're talking about having patience. We're talking about hypocrisy. We're talking about looking for love in all the wrong places. I mean, it is a rapid fire of wisdom statements. How then shall we live? Um, chapter 7 reads like the Proverbs. 
So if you've ever spent any time reading through the Proverbs, the Proverbs, uh, as you read a chapter, there's like so many different Proverbs, wisdom statements, and they don't all kind of line up together. It's like hard right turn to this right turn to that right turn. Ecclesiastes 7 will feel like that uh, one after another. I will tell you it's been a bit challenging for me to write one sermon on so many different wisdom statements in Ecclesiastes 7. It's actually not possible. I think we could do a whole summer series or a whole, honestly, a whole series, 12-week series on just chapter 7 all by itself. And so uh, our message is, this morning is going to be a bit of a few like mini sermons uh, from this topic to this topic to this topic. And maybe we're going to get through, I got through chapter or verse 10 in the first service, but I went pretty long, so we'll see. we'll see how we go in this service. I will tell you now, I will not get to verse 11 and beyond. So you're going to have homework at the end. Your homework is going to be to read verse 11 in chapter 7 to the end of the chapter. Uh, we'll see how far we get in our time together uh, at the beginning of chapter 7. So exercise to start. Who's ready for an exercise? I want you, thank you, Carly. I w- thank you, Kelly. I want you to think about a wisdom statement that you heard at some point in your life, probably when you were a little younger, and maybe you heard this statement from like a grandparent or a teacher or a parent or a coach or someone like that, and the wisdom statement has lingered with you, like you still remember it, to the degree that you not only remember it, you actually like still apply it because you're like, that's a good wisdom statement and I'm still going to operate in my life. Are y'all with me right now? So be thinking about a wisdom statement, because I'm going to ask a few of you to share it with me in just a moment. I'll share with you a few that I wrote down in my life. Uh, One was from my Papa Swain, and I can remember him telling me this as a young, kind of elementary age um, little guy, and he's talking with me about who we are as Swains, and that it it means something. And, and, And this was one statement that I remember my Papa telling me, he called me Sonny, uh, Sonny, your word is your bond. What's Papa trying to convey to me? What's the wisdom statement from my grandfather? It's that if you make a promise, you keep a promise. Your word is your bond. And I remember that, and it made a difference in my life, and I appreciate that wisdom statement from my granddad. My dad, you'll, many of you will know this wisdom statement. Perhaps you heard this growing up as well. Uh, I remember hearing this from my dad. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. And I, if we could, we could tease that out a little bit and go, you know, there's, there's healthy parts of that. There's probably maybe some unhealthy parts of that if we really think about it. But for the most part, I would say in my life, uh, it taught me that, you know what, life, life isn't always easy. And it requires some grit. And that's just what it is. And so I appreciated that. And my dad taught me that. And I'm going tomorrow, I'm going to fly to... Tennessee tomorrow. I go every fall for a few days and just help my dad on the farm. He's got a whole list of projects we're going to do, and uh, we're going to get we're going to get gritty, and it's going to be therapeutic for me because working with my dad on the farm is therapeutic for me. So that's not even in my notes. That's just what's happening. <laughs> uh, here's another one. My basketball coach: practice doesn't make perfect, but it makes progress. Practice doesn't make perfect. We're not looking for perfect practice because there's no such thing. There's no perfect game. Basketball is a game of mistakes. We're just trying to learn how to limit those more and more and more. But it makes progress. And I love that. You, 
you embrace discipline. If you embrace discipline in your life, it's gonna, you're going to progress. You're going to grow. You're going to mature. I, I appreciate these kind of wisdom statements. Uh, maybe three or four of you. What, these are three that I came up with. What are, what are some that you have? Anybody willing to share a wisdom statement that you learn that you still think about, and you think about it because it still makes an impact? have to be a friend to have a friend. Still remember it. Still true today, right, Ryan? Yeah, good. Thank you. Jeremy? My dad always says, patience builds strength of character. Patience builds strength of character. Still remember it. Still remember it. A couple more? Ben? Mm-hmm. Ah, that's, that's a wisdom about golf, <laughs> but I would say that that also applies to life. We have to learn, right? It's like, after, these are important things that we learn, like, one more, one more. Don't pick it, it'll never heal. Don't pick it, it'll never, don't pick a scab, right? It'll never heal. Okay. Thank you, Mel. Also applies to life in a profound way. Somebody was trying to grab my attention. Say that again. Steel wrapped in velvet as a dad. That's good. So it's like, and we could probably spend the next 20 minutes, right, talking about this. I'm sure that almost everyone, maybe everyone in here has something that they can remember why do we remember them? Why do we remember these wisdom statements? Because I think they made, they made some kind of impact in our life, which is the purpose of wisdom statements, which is the purpose of Proverbs, to impact our thinking. And when our thinking gets changed, our lives get transformed. So we think about the book of Proverbs, or we think about Ecclesiastes chapter 7, it's biblical wisdom, wisdom statements to help us think rightly about the kingdom of God. And when our thinking changes, our lives get transformed in the way of the kingdom of God. I think that's the purpose. And they're good and helpful. Here's one that perhaps you've heard before. Uh, one more good one. A good name is better than precious ointment or fine perfume. Anybody ever heard that one before? Do you know where that is? Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. And it keeps going. This is all, what an action-packed wisdom statement Ecclesiastes 7, 1 is. And the day of death better than the day of birth. Like, character and integrity matters more than riches. What's on the inside of us is more important than what's on the outside of us. A good name is better than precious ointment or fine perfume. And then the day of death is better than the day of birth. That feels, does that feel counterintuitive to anyone else? 
biblical wisdom can feel counterintuitive. And it's not always easy to think about and talk about. But what's so important and helpful for us is to open God's word and to allow God's word, the wisdom of God's word, to help us think rightly about the kingdom so that our lives are transformed in the way of God. And so it's not easy. It's a little counterintuitive. It's not easy to think about. But let's think about it. Let's, like we have to learn how to do hard things in life. Would you agree? And so perhaps we don't want to think about that because it's like, oh, man. But I think we would be wise to think about the day of death is better than the day of birth. I mean, the day of birth, if everything is going really well with the mom and the child, it's celebration, gratitude, and anticipation, and probably some fear in there as well as we anticipate everything that's ahead. And It's beautiful. It's wonderful. The day of death comes with gratitude and celebration as well, and remembrance, and pondering, and sadness, and grief. It's just, it's so much, there's so much more robust, multifaceted things to think about and process and feel on the day of death and the day of birth. For Christians, the day of death is heaven's revelation. Like, we are just passing through this hybel. Our eternal life has already begun in Jesus. If you are a believer and a follower of Jesus, eternal life for you has already begun. But this hybel that we are living in will end and we will step into eternity. And so the day of death is better. We step into the revelation of the very presence of God. This is, this is our faith. This is our faith. Paul says these words in his letter in Philippians 1 to the church in Philippi. For me to live is Christ and to die is counterintuitive, hard to think about, wise to think about. Also, Philippians 1, Paul says his own testimony, his own testimony is I long to go, I long to go to leave this hybel and to pass to the full presence of God in heaven. I long to go and be with Christ. Think about the thief on the cross. Jesus forgave the thief on the cross. He says, today, today you will be with me in paradise. I long, I long to go be with Christ, which would be far better, far better for me. But if, if I remain for a little while longer, it's for your benefit because I'm going to minister and pastor and lead you in the way of Jesus. But I... I want to go be with Christ. We talked about Psalm 90, uh, week one, Ecclesiastes chapter one, as we began the series. And I read a commentator on Psalm 90 this week, and the phrase is this, the Psalm 90 is the great psalm of human mortality. Psalm 90. And the verse there that we talked about in week one that I want to remind you of again this morning is this, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Instead of being so caught up in so many things, periphery, secondary, tertiary things, teach us to number our days so we get centered in the most important things. 
Life eludes our control, and we need God or we despair. So with that, let's read these first four verses of Ecclesiastes 7. How then shall we live? And the teacher is going to begin with lament. Let us learn to live with lament. Our Christianity is celebratory, and our Christianity, if we are wise, is also lament. And so to have a biblical theology of the celebration of our faith and the lament of this hybel is wisdom. So Ecclesiastes 7, 1 to 4. A good name is better than fine perfume. Again, what's on the inside is better than what's on the outside. And the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. And the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. Because a sad face is good for the heart. Did you know that was in the Bible? A sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. This is, this is what we like about Ecclesiastes, right? Like the rawness, the realness. It centers us. It gets our attention. It's what we love about it, but it's also challenging. It's also challenging. Um, I think the invitation, the invitation is for us to linger with the concept of biblical lament in these, in these verses. And so I want to invite you to do that. It's not easy to do, but it's so necessary living this hybel east of Eden. Because if we don't consider lament, if we don't consider the wisdom of these words, when tragedy and sorrow comes on your, the soil of your life, it will sweep you away. And so, it is wise for us to consider the wisdom. What is sadness? What is sadness? Here's the phrase I want to linger with with you. Sad face is good for the heart. What is sadness? God has created us, the imago Dei, in the very likeness and the image of God. He's created us physical beings, spiritual beings, emotional beings. God has created us as emotional beings. Sadness is a God-given emotion, I believe. And our tears, the tears that we have in our lives about things that we're going through or things that we're struggling with or something that we're, that we're feeling sadness over, our tears accompany our sadness, don't they? Sadness, what is sadness? Sadness tells you that you are alive, that you have a heart and it's beating. Sadness tells you that you care. Sadness tells you that people matter to you. Sadness connects you to your, your humanity and the shared humanity we have with people in this world. Sadness, if we allow it to, will connect us to empathy. 
Sadness, hear this, sadness will tell you that your heart is aligned with God's justice. Sadness reminds us that we are living east of Eden. And sadness can lead us to real hope in God. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you. My tears have been my food day and night. My spirit is downcast within me, yet, yet I will hope in God. Psalm 41. Um, if, we, if we aren't honest with each other about sadness, like if I don't want to feel it, if I don't want to look at it, if I don't want to see it, if I don't want to feel it, if we aren't honest about our sadness, oftentimes we bury it, we bury it, we bury it, we bury it, we shove it, we shove it, we shove it, sadness, sadness, no tears. We, we just, we don't want to feel it, we don't want to look at it, we don't want to be honest about it. If we're not careful, if we're not careful, um, if we're not honest about it, it can lead us to bitterness and resentment. And our hearts grow cold when they're full of bitterness and resentment. But if we allow our hearts to feel sadness and we engage with God about our sadness and we engage with safe people about our sadness, we actually honor our hearts. I believe that we would do well by embracing that a sad face is good for the heart and I believe that we would do well by having a relationship with people that if they see that we have a sad face and they ask what's going on, that we tell them. I believe that that is good for us. But here's what happens. I don't know how, how often or how much, but it happens. And I think you'll agree with me. You're one-on-one -on -one with a person. You're in a small group with someone. Maybe you're in a place like this where you're standing up and there's people around and I'm sharing a story, and sadness begins to grip my heart. And I wouldn't choose this, but I'm overcome with tears, and I'm having a hard time getting the words out. And when that happens, sometimes, oftentimes, I don't know, maybe you know, the word that, this, like if I'm up here, and I'm like, I'm choking up, and I'll just look at you, I was like, you guys, I am... And I say what? I am sorry. Right? I'm feeling this deep emotion. I'm feeling sadness. Tears are coming. You actually have an opportunity to step into a real vulnerable, authentic place with me. But I tell you that I am sorry for my tears. And I go, well, what are we apologizing for? Are we apologizing for being human, like a human being? Like, is that what we're apologizing for? For feeling sadness in life struggles? Like, how, how strange does this sound? Like, I'm up here. I'm sharing a story about my brokenness. I begin to, to, to weep or to cry or whatever. And I look at all of you and I go, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And you say to me, thank you. Thank you. I forgive you. Please stop. Right? 
Because you, your vulnerability and your honesty really offends me. When we do wrong, when we truly make a mistake, when we wrong someone, I believe that it is rise when we do wrong. It is good to own it, to apologize for it, to seek amends, to say, I did this. Will you please forgive me? I am sorry. That is good and right. And, and it's, it's, it's how grace works itself into our, into our minds and our hearts. It's how we uh, keep community with each other. But I just go like, I'm feeling sadness and I'm offering someone the intimacy of my tears and for some reason I feel like that's wrong and I'm just gonna say, it's not wrong. It's not wrong. I would invite you to get more comfortable with your tears. I'll speak to the men for just a moment. Some of you men may have grown up in a family culture where it's like, you want to cry, son? I'll give you something to cry about. And somewhere along the line, we get this thing like, nobody can see my tears because that's not tough. And I would say to you men, it's actually more courageous. It's tougher. It's more courageous to let somebody in to the vulnerable place in here and let someone see your tears. Are you going to be courageous? Invite somebody in. Invite somebody in. We need to get more comfortable with our tears. We need to get more comfortable with other people's tears. Lean into tears. Tears are windows into the soul. Like someone's tears, there's always something vulnerable and real and honest and beautiful behind the tears. So if you're with someone and they're sharing sadness and tears, a question, would you tell me a little bit more about your tears? I just want to listen. I just want to be with you and your sadness. Would you tell me a little bit more about it? I'm so sorry. Don't apologize. I'm actually, I'm actually grateful that you're trusting me with your tears in this moment. Like you want to get, like you, you love Ecclesiastes? Like get comfortable. We got to get comfortable with sadness. And sadness, a sad face is good for the heart. And I believe it's good for our relationships with one another. Bible trivia, shortest verse in the Bible. Anybody know the shortest verse in the Bible? Who wants to tell me? Jesus wept. I actually talked to Pat right after this, and he goes, do you know there's another verse in the Bible with two words and the same amount of letters? I'm like, no, and it's the verse is the second, and I can't remember where he told me it was, but I was tripping. I was like, what? Anyway. There is another verse with two words in the Bible, and it's the second. You can look it up. Jesus wept. Do you know the story? John chapter 11, John eleven thirty five. 35. There you go. If you've never memorized the verse in the Bible, you're leaving church today. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. It's the story of his friend Lazarus. He was such dear friends with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus had died. Mary Martha's in word. He lingered. Four days goes by. He shows up, there is palpable grief, mourning, because Lazarus is not with us anymore. Jesus sees the grief, he enters the grief, Jesus wept. Jesus, the creator of the universe, the Lord of glory, omniscient, omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful. Jesus Christ, the Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
Do you think that Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead before he got to Bethany that day? Yet he wept because he entered in to the story with his friends and he met them there with his own tears. Do you know what's not in John 11? You won't find this. Read John 11. This is not, you will not find this in John 11. Jesus apologizing for his tears. Because our tears, they speak about what we value. He valued Lazarus. He honored Lazarus. He honored Mary and Martha and the community's grief. Our tears speak about what we value. Sadness honors what we love. That's why I think it's a sad face is good for the heart. It invites us into love and to honor the things that God has given us in our life. I love this statement because it teaches us that we can have sadness and goodness or gladness all at the same time. Like we can, we can operate in feeling sad and having like the gladness of the Lord with us, the goodness of the Lord, hope in the midst of all of it. It doesn't have to be either other and uh, I, I think that's really important. I think this is really, this is really theologically important for our lives. And like, we need a, a good biblical theology around holding sadness and gladness at the same time, joy and sorrow at the same time. And that's why the scriptures talk about it everywhere. Like we're in Ecclesiastes 7, Old Testament wisdom literature, Having this conversation, a sad face is good for the heart. We mentioned this, I think it was last week, John 16, and Jesus is spending time with his disciples. He's like, you're going to grieve. You're going to grieve. It's going to be yours. You're going to hold it, but no one's going to take your joy from you in your grief. You're going to have it together, grief and joy at the same time. New Testament letter, Romans 8, Paul writes to the church in Rome, same biblical concept, what we suffer now, suffering is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Sadness, gladness, all the same time. One of the most helpful books that I have read in my journey of finding healing, um, sometimes to the next breath, sometimes to the next day, sometimes for the next season, finding healing in grief and sorrow is a book called A Grace Disguised. It was a car accident in 1991. I was a senior in high school. And in, the, in that moment, the author of the book lost his mom, his wife, and one of his children. Eight years, eight years later, can you imagine the onslaught of grief in that moment. It's hard to wrap, it's hard to look at, isn't it? It's hard to think about, isn't it? Eight years later, after the accident, Gerald Sitzer is the author. He says, rawness and utter bewilderment has given way to contentment and gratitude. Sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Supernatural, supernatural. He goes on, as strange as it may sound, 
I wish every person could experience what I have experienced, though without the acute suffering. I wouldn't wish, I wouldn't wish the acute suffering on my worst enemy. Because it's so, it's so acute. It's so overwhelming. You're literally just trying to get to the next breath, you know? Some of you know. Some of you really know. I wish every person could experience what. Why would the author say that? Because when you, when you go through seasons of life, the reality of the brokenness of living life on this side of heaven, we're going to suffer. And when you go through it, the joy of the Lord, the peace of the Lord, the hope of the Lord, it just becomes so much more real. It just becomes so much more real. And so that's why I think he says, I wish every person could experience what I have. And that's why I would probably the same, say the same thing. One of the commentators on this verse said this around verses 1 to 4. No one who tastes death up close and personal is ever the same again. And I concur. We're changed. We're changed. It's deeper. It's more profound. It's more rooted in God's goodness, his character, and the hope that we have. It's better for me to be with Christ, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Sad face is good for the heart. Like, if you don't want sadness, if you don't want sadness, protect your heart at all costs. But if you are going to love deeply into this life, and if you're going to love deeply into people that God has given you, we have to prepare ourselves to feel Sadness. Are you with me? A sad face is good for the heart. And then, and then he just, the preacher just goes to a whole new wisdom statement. So I think with time, I'm going to get through, I think I'll get through verse 6. We'll have to call it good there. But I'll go to 5 and 6. I will tell you, after we read 5 and 6, which is really about like receiving rebuke, uh, we get to other things that you're going to miss. Uh, boy, we get to uh, having patience, uh, anger, verse 9, like living, like being nostalgic in verse 10, and he gets into hypocrisy, and then he gets into like, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places. I mean, it's an action-packed book. And so again, the homework is to go and continue to read, but I'll, I'll spend some last few moments here in 5 and 6. So we read that with you. Again, hard right turn from the deep water of lament straight to the next one. How then shall we live? It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is hybel. NIV translation, this too is meaningless. I was with Savannah, my 17-year-old. She's a 
senior at Fort Collins High School, and she had a doctor's appointment at MCR on just a checkup for some stuff on her back, and so we got there a little early, and my wife, is Lindsay, has been out of town, and so I thought the appointment was at 8. It's actually at 9. It's a number of things that I dropped this week. Don't tell her. Uh, but we were there an hour early. I was like, oh, we're here an hour, hour early. I get an hour with Savannah. This is actually, I'm going to redeem the time. Uh, we get, you know, buy her a blueberry muffin or whatever, and we're sitting out on the patio. And that MCR is a really nice patio down there. I was like, whoa, this is really nice. Anyway, I'm like talking with her about the day of death is better than the, the day of death is better than the day of birth. And we're, she's processing through that, and she's just kind of looking at me like, well, I don't know. So I read these verses to her, and I, I paraphrase it for her. I said, you know, like, I think this is what, what's saying, Savannah, is embrace wise and loving correction. Just like embrace it. Humble yourself to receive wise and loving correction. But you have to humble yourself to receive it. Pride will not have it. So if there's a trusted counselor, teacher, coach, it's for your benefit to humble yourself and step into spaces to receive wise and loving correction, and be careful, be careful, Savannah, of the applause of people. And so I wanted to get her perspective. You know, she's a Gen Zer, and uh, I said, you know, what does your, I asked her this question, what does your generation especially, like where does your generation especially receive the applause, the applause of the world? Without even, I knew she would say this. You know what she said. You know what she said? What did she say? Media, social media. She's like, yeah, Dad, that's a problem for my generation. And I go, you know what? It's a problem for my generation, too. What am I, an Xer? Gen Xer. Millennials, Gen Z. I don't, I don't forget all the, all the things. Boomers. I think it's, I think it's a struggle for a lot of us. Paul has some words about it. Galatians 1, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? Any recovering people pleasers in the room? Don't raise your hand, but I'm one, okay. (laughs) If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Would you, would you agree that people-pleasing is a problem for some people, maybe more people? I don't know. People-pleasing. I can speak about this because I am a former people-pleaser, and I can still wrestle with people-pleasing. I'll, I'll invite you behind the curtain. How about I invite you behind the curtain for just a moment? My worst mental, emotional, spiritual space every single week is when I leave this church on Sunday afternoon. If you ever feel stirred to pray for me, please pray for me on Sunday afternoon. If I don't get outside, get hiking, get with my family, if I just, if I get home, boy, what do people think? Do they, ah, I mean, every, ah, it can get paralyzing. Maybe that's just me. What is people-pleasing? Boy, we can, we can get caught up in this, like, I think psychologists call this codependency. I'm not a psychologist, but I've been in my own counseling, so I can talk about this, but I'm not a psychologist. I'm a pastor. Codependency, as I've learned it in my journey, 
is that I'm only okay if you're okay with me. So I'm working really, really, really hard to make sure that you're okay with me. So I'm performing for you, performing for you, and I can only be okay if you're okay with me. And what happens in that place in a relational dynamic, again, I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not trying to counsel people up here, I'm just, I'm, a, I'm preaching, but this is wisdom literature, so hey, it fits. I lose my voice, I lose my perspective, because I'm so consumed about what your perspective is of me, and so I, I go away, and I'm only okay if you're okay. And I just don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's good for us. I don't think that's good for us relationally. We must be discerning about people-pleasing. We must be discerning about the applause of people. The applause of people is a reward that is very short-lived and soon forgotten. There's like a wisdom statement around that. 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. It's fleeting. Chasing the wind, chasing the wind, chasing the wind. And so it is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than listen to the song of fools. Having a wise mentor, young people in the room, college students, young adults in the room, it is wise. It is wise for you. It's wise, it's wise for everybody. It's wise for you as a young person to have a wise mentor in your life. It's wise to seek biblical counsel. That is wise. It is wise for us to humble ourselves and to receive the biblical rebuke of Scripture, correcting us, training us in righteousness. That's wise. To step into humility, to receive it, and then to grow into maturity, trusting in what God says about you. Being rooted and grounded in his love, like having a, a true sense of self-worth because of what God says about you is the most true thing about you. And so I get off the hamster wheel of performance and codependency and people-pleasing and all those things, and I don't have to like build up my self-esteem. I, don't, I can get off of this treadmill to be like, oh, I only feel like I have value if you tell me I have value based on my performance. And then guess what? The next day I have to perform all over again. And I'll tell you, it's a... It's a Makes me want to cuss a little bit. It, it's a prison. It's not freedom. It's not freedom. But having a self-worth, allowing the word of God and the identity that God has given you, son, daughter, forgiven, free, rooted and grounded in love, that will, that will allow you, that will empower you to receive the wisdom from Scripture and from Someone that is wiser helping you understand. Show, show you the back of your head, right? I think, it, I don't know where this is in Proverbs. Better than the, the, the rebuke of a friend than the kiss of an enemy. Do you have people in your life that will talk to you honestly about what you can't see? That's wise and it requires humility and a rootedness in our identity in Christ. Okay. I have a whole nother page of notes. Um, I'll just end with this. I'm going to skip past C.S. Lewis. I had a C.S. Lewis quote for you. I'm going to close here. Ecclesiastes 3.11. Whew. 
How then shall we live? How then shall we live? God has made everything beautiful in this time. He has set eternity into the hearts of mankind. We are built for home, our truest home. I want to read, worship team, you can come back up. I'm going to read just a passage of scripture over you. Here's your homework. Your homework is to read the rest of Ecclesiastes 7. And I want to also encourage you to go home and read 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I just want to read uh, the, end, the end of chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4 over, over us as we close this morning. Again, the rest of the chapter, I mean, anger, it's, it's got anger stuff. It's got hypocrisy stuff. It's got looking for love in all the wrong places stuff. It's like... How do we operate with like leadership that's challenging for us? There's so much more stuff in Ecclesiastes 7 that we didn't get to. So go home and read that, and I would encourage you to read 2 Corinthians 4. The grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even if we have a sad face, because a sad face is good for the heart. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. What's on the inside of us is more important than on what's on the outside of us. A good name is better than fine ointment, precious ointment, fine perfume. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. God has set eternity into the hearts let us keep our eyes on Jesus and let us not lose heart. And it's not like, I'm not like saying to you like, hey, friends, like don't, like don't lose heart, okay? That's not, that's not my posture. What I'm saying to you is that the authority of the word of God is proclaiming a powerful truth on you. It's therefore we do not lose heart, period, because Jesus rose from the dead and his spirit is in us. Do not lose heart. Encourage me in these ways and I will encourage you in these ways and we will keep showing up here week after week all the more to encourage, strengthen, empower each other until the day of the Lord is here. Amen. Would you stand? Let's worship. Let's worship.